and good morning to you. As I was hearing uh, Pete read that from Revelation 5, this, that display, kind of a prediction, a preview of what we're going to experience, I also thought of the passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that talks about something similar, using some similar descriptive language saying, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the what? Okay, that's not a, you know me well enough by now, I'm not going to ask rhetorical questions, so go ahead and answer. To the church of the firstborn. It's a, it's a very intriguing title that you and I are entrusted with. We're the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. The firstborn from what? Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. The essence of who we are as church gathered, church scattered, as church universal, as church distributed, is we're the church of the firstborn from among the dead. That is the essence of who we are. We're the ecclesia, that Greek word means to, to, the root means to, we've been called out. We've been called out of fallen humanity and we've now become this new humanity. Men and women who are the firstborn from among the dead, which is the agenda of Jesus on this planet, is to bring a dead humanity back to life. From the garden in Genesis chapter 3, when, the, uh, when, when Adam and Eve were tempted, saying, you know what, go ahead and rebel. You will not surely die, even though God told you would. We died. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But the beauty is that we've now been made alive in Christ. That's our inheritance. That's who we are. We're the church of the firstborn from the dead. Now here's the deal. We've been celebrating the beauty of the, the vision that God has entrusted to Northland and, and being the church distributed. And we're, we're grasping that in more and more that we are indeed distributed all over the world. But it's not just that we, are, we need to grasp that, we, that we're distributed. It's also that we need to grasp what we've been distributed for. And that is to give life in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our cities. It's not just that we go and ascribe to a gospel partially, but we need to ascribe to a gospel in a whole way. Here's what I mean by that. In, in John chapter 20, verse 31, the apostle John says, this is why I've written my gospel. These things have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And most of us have grown up in church contexts where that is, that, that's supposedly the, the entire gospel. That's not the entire gospel. He says, and that by believing, you may have what? You may have what? Life in his name. So often you hear churches saying, well, the key here is that people believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, but also the reason that we're to believe that is that belief, that faith, that engagement with God in the gospel leads us once again to life. We who are dead in our trespasses and sins coming back to life, so we become the church of the firstborn from the dead. And then on that final day is when we gather in the land of the living as men and women who've been made alive, restored to that God-glorifying humanity for which we were attended in the first place. So I want you to have that as the backdrop as we unpack 
this longing that we all have to be alive. Last year, I flew from Orlando, it was a Tuesday afternoon, I flew from Orlando up to New York for a meeting, several meetings over two or three days, and I was dragging, I mean, I could have, I could have uh, been uh, the, the subject of one of those commercials, those travel commercials where you've got a weary business traveler, and I was just dragging into the uh, hotel lobby. I was thinking, I had a meeting that night, I had no idea how I was going to get enough energy to do that, thinking there's not enough five-hour energies on this block for me to drink them all to be ready. And I guess my weariness caused me to have a tunnel vision, not to notice, it prevented me from noticing the camera crew that was off to the side. Midway through the registration process, you know, the girls asked me for my driver's license and credit card. The light comes on. That's when I noticed this camera crew. I look over, it's sound guy, lighting guy, and somebody else. But a guy was walking towards me with a microphone. He came right in front on the other side of the counter next to the girl that was checking me in. And he said, Mr. Matthew Heard? I said, yeah. He said, do you mind if I ask you a trivia question about Billy Joel? I said, sure, I, that's what I thought you were going to ask me. Go ahead. Um, how random is that? I mean, just out of the blue. And so he said, okay, what is the nickname of Billy Joel? The Piano Man. I said, Piano Man. When I said that, truly, Bells sounded, confetti fell from the ceiling up above the registration desk. Employees that I had not noticed gathering behind me started clapping. And this guy thrust a golden envelope towards me and says, congratulations, you've won two tickets to tomorrow night's performance by Billy Joel in Madison Square Garden. So how cool is that? I never win anything. You know, it, it, um, so the first thing I thought about was calling my sons to let them, actually, the first thing I thought about was calling the guy I had a meeting with the next night to explain to him how God's will had changed um, <laughs> and work through that one. Then the second, I was thinking about letting my sons know. And the reason is my, my three sons all love Billy Joel. The reason they love Billy Joel is they have a mother who loves Billy Joel. My wife, Arlene, discipled them in Billy Joelness as they were growing up, they had memorized Billy Joel's two CD set, The Essential Billy Joel. They had all the songs memorized. And so I was thinking, I knew the boys would be excited, and I thought Arlene would too, but every rendition of my little speech as I was rehearsing it, hey, honey, the guy you've wanted to hear in concert all your life, I'm going to get to hear him tomorrow night. Aren't you happy for me? It just had a hollow ring to it. Then I thought about the counsel that we just recently received. We just entered empty nestum. Our youngest son had left for college, and we were asking people, how do you navigate this? And they said, here's the deal. The beauty is that you, you can now be spontaneous for the first time in a quarter of a century. You, I mean, you guys, you, 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 it's just the two of you. So just kind of be open to whatever. I that counsel came to mind. I thought, uh, we're empty nesters. We can be spontaneous. So I went online and got a ticket, a free ticket with miles, my airline miles, departing from Denver at 10.03 the next morning. And then I called her up and I explained to her what had happened. And as I knew, she was so excited. I said, oh, but that's not all. You're going to go with me to the concert tomorrow night. It was dead silence. She, she says, that's tomorrow night. I said, I, I know, you've got a flight tomorrow morning, 10.03. She was out in Colorado, leaving out of Denver. Silence. She says, that's tomorrow morning. I said, I know, but we're empty nesters. We, we can be spontaneous. You can come. I won't charge you for the room. Uh, I'll buy you dinner. 
and so talked her into it. Actually, it didn't take that much talking. So she came. We showed up the next night, Madison Square Garden, 20,000 people sold out. I'm walking up to each of them. My ticket's free. Is your ticket free? My ticket's free. Is your ticket free? Actually, I didn't do that, but we did get to our seat. And the first thing that I noticed was how old Billy Joel is. I, I mean, I was thinking of the guy whose photograph is on that two CD uh, set. And, and, uh, but by the way, having said that, I will tell you this, he did not miss a beat the entire night. Unbelievable energy, musicality, the same Billy Joel. I mean, just as excellent as can be and gifted. The second thing I noticed is I looked around and there were, there were a lot of old people around. <laughs> then Arlene, I, I took a selfie with Arlene and me and the, the guy in the selfie standing next to my wife, I noticed, is old. Uh, what's the deal? Then I started looking, though, and paying more attention. And you know what? Every decade of, of life, other than zero to ten, was substantially represented at the concert. Billy Joel's appeal went through all ages. The next day in Newsday, uh, Matthew Friedman wrote a... Uh, an editorial about Billy Joel's appeal, and he's been an icon on Broadway for many years, and he said, at the core, it's Billy Joel's substance in both his musicality and his lyrics and the way that he brings to light things that have been hidden away in your soul and you didn't even know. And I thought, boy, you're not kidding. When I read that, I thought of a moment the previous night at the concert that it was an aha for me. Billy Joel sang a song that I've heard pretty often. It's called The River of Dreams. What I'd never paid attention to before, though, I realized, even though I have sung along with that song, are the lyrics. I bet I've heard that song a hundred times in my life. But I had one of those, are you kidding me moments? Did he just say that? The beauty of having a smartphone is you can look up lyrics during a concert. <laughs> Hear them. Look at them. In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep from the mountains of faith to a river so deep. As I was listening to that song a moment ago, I find myself staring at this communion table. And it's because this communion table has everything to do with these lyrics. I'm hoping as we go a little further this morning, you're going to figure out why. He says, I must be looking for something. Something sacred I lost. But the river is wide and it's too hard to cross. And even though I know the river is wide, I still walk down every evening and I stand on the shore and I try to cross to the opposite side so I can finally find out what I've been looking for. In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep through the valley of fear. It was from the mountains of faith. Now it's through the valley of fear to a river so deep, and I've been searching for something. It was something sacred I lost. Now it's something taken out of my soul. Something I thought I would never lose. Something somebody stole. I don't know why I go walking at night, but now I'm tired and I don't want to walk anymore. I hope it doesn't take the rest of my life 
until I find out what it is that I've been looking for. Billy Joel makes no attempt to espouse any type of belief in God. He says, at best, he's an agnostic. In fact, later in this very song, he says, God knows I'm not a spiritual man. But great art acts as a hand that comes up to the shutter of our hearts and opens those shutters so that we can see what's there. Great art helps us articulate things deep within us that we could not articulate for ourselves, and that's the brilliance of those lyrics. He's articulating something that we all know. It's what C.S. Lewis described by a German word. C.S. Lewis, a great apologist of last century, author of the Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity. The word that he used to describe what Billy Joel's experiencing and what you and I, the reason that we relate with it, is we all have deep within us what Lewis describes as zinzut. It's a German word that means longing, ape, deep longing, abiding ache and yearning. And he says, when I was six years old is when I first started realizing that, when our family moved to a house on the east side of Belfast called Leeboro House, Little Lee, and I could look at the distance, Lewis would say, at the Castlereagh Hills, and they evoked something in me that they would not satisfy. And it was this ache, this zinzuk that led me in my entire journey through atheism and into agnosticism and then into deism and to theism and finally to biblical Christianity when I became the most reluctant convert in all of England. And he says, what led me the way, uh, led me along the way was my willingness to engage with my zinzut, my deep longing, which I discovered only God could address. It's that same zinzut that had led a woman a couple of thousand years ago to get married. She had all sorts of longings. We don't know what they all were for. There are a number of cultural factors at play, but bottom line, she, she felt like uh, I needed to be married and that's going to satisfy it. We don't know the circumstances, but ultimately that marriage did not work. So she got married again. It didn't address her zinzucht either. Nor did the third husband or the fourth husband. And the fifth husband still, her longings were unmet. She hadn't totally given up on men, but marriage she was hesitating with, and so she's now living with this sixth guy. It's ostracized her from her community, but she doesn't care. Because far more than her reputation is at stake, her soul, her heart is dying. But it has changed some of her habits, including one of the basics in first century Palestine in the desert. Water is everything, and everybody would go to the local well early morning and early evening. But she avoided that because that's when she had to be exposed to the gossiping ridicule of the other women in the village. So she went at high noon in the middle of the day. It was hot, but at least she was unassailed by the judgment. On this particular day, she rounds the bend and her heart sinks because she realizes, I'm not going to be alone. She gets a little closer, her heart sinks further when she realizes it's a man. 
And in her culture, men didn't always esteem women very highly. And she gets a little bit closer and notices by, notices by his attire that he's a Jew. And her heart sinks even further because she's a Samaritan and Jews despise Samaritans. So he, she was shocked when he spoke to her. Actually, with kindness, he asked for a favor. He said, could I get a drink of water? She wonders why he's talking to her. She's a Samaritan woman. He's a Jew. And then he says something to her that I'm sure years later she would reflect to friends was the turning point of her life and her longing. In verse 10 of John 4, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? Is it also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal, what? Life. The woman said to him, sir, okay, uh, she plays along a little, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I, I have no husband. She replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. Now there are some in legalistic, judgmental, religious communities that would say to Jesus, out of boy at this moment. Out of boy for exposing to her the, the rottenness of who she is. She's been divorced or married five times and she's living with a guy. This is, this is, this is not even 21st century Hollywood, it's first century Palestine. Out of boy, Jesus, let her have it. Please hear me very clearly, there's nothing having to do with shaming this woman in Jesus' words. He's not wanting to shame her. He's using words like a surgeon would use a scalpel. And he's, he's taking her to a place to begin to unpack this number five, as in five husbands. He's getting her to embrace and engage with the, the, the diligence, the fervor of her pursuit of something she thought would address the deepest thirst of her humanity. He, he's drawing her into something he wants to draw us into. 
looking at various realities. I'm going to give you four that are included, and I'm sure some of where he was leading her. Number one, just the sheer reality that our longings, we need to understand, are central to being human. We all have them. We've all got Zinzuk. We've all got those, those deep yearnings. Back in 1977, uh, two spacecraft were sent in opposite directions into the galaxy on a one-way trip, Voyager 1, Voyager 2. The purpose of Voyager 1 and 2 was to carry with it on board uh, a summary of humanity on planet Earth to introduce to any, if there's any other interstellar intelligence in the universe, this is a way for us to make the introduction of who we are. And on board of Voyager 1 and 2 were two identical golden records that had video, uh, great literature, um, so songs, plays, uh, movies. It just snippets of who humanity is. The, creator, the creative director of the project, her name is Andrewian. Uh, the project was led by Carl Sagan, and uh, Carl and Ann got married about four years after this, this particular project in 1977. And she was the one in charge of selecting the music that would go on this album that would introduce humanity to the galaxy. No small task. In fact, Carl Sagan told her, he says, this is going to last 100 million years, so make sure you pick carefully. The final song that Andrew Ian picked to go on this, to be the pinnacle of introduction, was Beethoven's String Quartet number 13, Opus 130. You say, why did she pick that one? Well, Snoop Dogg hadn't written any, any songs yet, and so that was part of it. But there was another reason. About four or five years ago, she was interviewed, and she explained. She said, when I heard it would last a thousand million years, I immediately thought of, quote, this great, beautiful, sad piece of music on which Beethoven had written in the margin the word Sinzot. Part of what we wanted to capture in the Voyager message was this great longing we all feel. Why? Because it's what distinguishes, it's one of the, one of the things that distinguishes us from animals. Not longings for popcorn or Diet Coke. Longings that go to the core, the bedrock of who we are as human beings. We can't always articulate it. Sometimes we need a Billy Joel to help us. Longings for things like security and intimacy and love and significance. Longings for beauty and truth and goodness and joy and wholeness and purpose, and shalom, longings for resolution and justice, longings for home, for what Pete read earlier from J.R.R. Tolkien, longings for Eden. We've all got them. We're at varying degrees of being able to articulate them and put our finger on them, but there's not a person within the sound of my voice that doesn't have, a, for example, a longing for significance or a longing for security. So they're central to who we are. But the second reality that Jesus was wanting to invite this woman to embrace is that our, our longings need to be engaged with and discerned. 
Not only, number one, do our longings, are they central to being human, but they, they must be in, embraced and, and discerned. It's, it's a matter of us paying attention to them. That same legalistic, religious, uh, uh, judgmental crowd that would have yelled at Jesus uh, in mistakenly congratulating him on shaming this woman, they would also maybe be the same ones who would say, don't, don't you pay any attention to your longings, they'll get you in trouble. Our longings are not the problem. What we do with our longings is the problem, but our longings can give us clues as to who we are. We've got an imprint on us, it's a mago day. Men and women created in the image of God. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God says, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Notice what he's saying. A cistern, it's a water container. It's a water container that, that could be made out of uh, rocks or hewn out of stone. These cisterns in our lives are what I would refer to as pursuits. We go after these pursuits thinking what, that they'll quench something deep within. Here's an example. Some people say, uh, I've got a longing to be an NBA basketball player. That's not a longing. When I begin to engage and discern my longings, I start distinguishing between pursuits and longings. Pursuits are the cisterns, are what we go after in order to have longings addressed. See, becoming an NBA basketball player is not the longing. The longing is, is what I think becoming the NBA, an NBA basketball player will do for me. I, I hew for myself this cistern called uh, becoming an NBA star, thinking that in it is water that will quench my thirst for significance, maybe, or security. We say, uh, I've got a longing to be, to, for, for marriage. That's not a longing, that's a pursuit. We're, we're getting married in order for something deeper to be quenched within us. A deeper thirst maybe for intimacy. I have a longing, somebody might say, to have this amount of money in my bank account. That's not a longing, that's a pursuit. It's a pursuit that we're going after in order to see a longing maybe for security addressed. Our, our cisterns can be beautiful things like marriage and career that we're just trying to put, we're, we're trying to extract from those things something that they can't provide, that only God can. Our cisterns can also be sinful, rebellious pursuits. We go after uh, gossip, a pursuit of gossip because of a deeper longing to feel significant. And if I gossip about this person, I'll feel better about myself. Or porn, or stealing. Our sins are all pursuits, but there's a longing underneath. And when we start digging, we start to realize when God says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've hewn for themselves pursuits, cisterns, broken cisterns, that can't hold the type of water they're really thirsty for. And as I began to follow Jesus' tutelage, he says, understand your longings are central to who you are, but you must engage them and discern them underneath the light of my truth. And when we start doing that and take an inventory, what pursuits have occupied your life this past week? 
sinful pursuits, laudable pursuits that can become idolatrous because we're trying to extract from them what only God can give us. Look at those pursuits and look underneath. What are the longings that I'm seeking to address? And we, if we go deep enough, we'll begin to realize that ultimately our longings are rooted in eternity. At the bedrock of my longings is something eternal. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, he says, I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race and he's made everything beautiful in its time. And he's also set eternity in the human heart. Notice he doesn't say he set eternity in the hearts of church people. Every human heart has eternity in it. But we can't make sense of it. No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end, which is the beauty of the gospel because under his tutelage, he begins to bring us back to what that eternity is doing in our heart in the first place if we will engage with it. When I was writing this book that I call Life with a Capital L, referring to the life that God gives us through Jesus, the life of the gospel. It, to be alive, God doesn't determine whether we're alive or not just by whether our heart's beating and our lungs are breathing, but by whether we've been made alive, brought back to life at the core of our humanity. That's what this book was about. I'm up in the Rocky Mountains to write some of it, and I've got my laptop, and I'm writing away, and all of a sudden I notice my battery's dying. So I need to recharge my laptop. Now, what I'm about to say is going to be a little technical, and some of you is just going to go right over your heads, unless you've got an electrical engineering background, but go ahead and bear with me for a second. My, the plug that I had had a three thingy on the end of it. You know what those are? And uh, this was a very old cabin with a friend of mine, and I, I start to look around, and the outlets are all two thingy outlets. You tracking with me? There's no hardware store, I had no adapter. I start to panic a little bit because I'm up there to write. And yet, if I lose the juice in my laptop, I'm not gonna be able to. So I'm walking around the house. I got a three-thingy plug. All that are around are two-thingy outlets. Finally, I found a three-thingy outlet behind the refrigerator and all was saved. But I reflected on that. I said, that's us, that's me, that's you. We've got, we've got an eternal plug. And we're, we're trying to say, let me, let me plug it into this thing called career. Let me plug it into this thing called embezzlement. Let me plug it into this thing called a marriage. Let me plug it into this thing called gossip. Let me plug it in. The list goes on and on. Let me plug it into this hobby to my golf handicap. And it doesn't fit. And what Jesus does is he's letting her know that not only are your longings central to who you are as a human being, not only must they be engaged and discerned underneath the light of God's truth, not, not only are they rooted in eternity, ultimately, my deepest longings are for Christ's life. Your deepest longing. What you and I are ultimately thirsty for, the reason that I was looking at this table of the communion elements during Billy Joel's song is this is what we're ultimately thirsty for. Not religiosity, but the beauty of what Christ can restore to us as he invites us to become part of the ecclesia, 
the church of the firstborn from the dead, making us alive again. Go back to that text in Jeremiah chapter two that we looked at a minute ago. My people have committed two sins, God says. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. You get that? Did you get that? That's not enough of you. Get that? All right. Spring of living water. Remember that phrase. And have dug their own sisters, broken sisters that cannot hold water. Now fast forward to what Jesus tells the woman. You read it a moment ago, John 4, verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's the same water that God is referring to in Jeremiah. Life water. And in three verses later in verse 13, Jesus answered, John chapter four, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What did Jesus come to bring us? New ideology, new set of rules? No, he came to bring us eternal life. Here's our problem. We think that's synonymous with heaven. And this is at the core of why I, I wrote this book. It's, yes, for my sons, but also for the church of the firstborn to embrace who we are as the church of the firstborn from the dead because our problem is we, we make eternal life synonymous with heaven. Will eternal life be experienced in heaven? Absolutely, and as I refer to it, in undiluted fashion. But eternal life is not synonymous with heaven. Eternal life is something that begins right now. The moment that I trust Christ, here's what Jesus says, John 5, verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me will, when they die, have eternal life. And in the meantime, they just need to figure it out. No. Believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life and will not be judged. In fact, when they believe they have, he has crossed over at that moment from death to life. The moment, if you're a follower of Jesus, the moment that you embrace the gospel, you came alive. Now the question is, you became alive, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you came alive. The question now is, if I'm alive, am I experiencing that life? And part of our, the malaise in the church, this church of the firstborn, that's called to be life-giving in culture. Have you ever heard people refer to a church as that's a dead church? How sad. And it's because we've confused eternal life as being something only for the future. And the problem is grammar. My English teacher would be so proud. We've got eternal, that's adjective. We've got life, that's noun. Tracking with me? We fixate on the adjective and we forget about the noun. The adjective eternal, which is quantity, it's going to live forever. It's the amount of life and so forth. We fixate on the adjective and we ignore the noun. We fixate on the quantity and we ignore the quality. Quantity, eternal quality, life. And we overlook that as being something that is available to us right now in the midst of our humanity as it's being restored. It's not just the quantity that's important with eternal life, it's quality. Years ago, I was backpacking up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. People that know that know the people up there call themselves youpers. 
And I'm coming back from this trip. It was a solo trip, and I was there alone. I was a minimalist. I didn't have a lot of food. I was starving to death. So I came across this old diner on the middle of nowhere. Actually, you go to the middle of nowhere, hang a left, go another 10 miles, and there you'll find the diner. Uh, it's like out of, from back to the future. You know, I walk in, jukebox is playing. Uh, the waitress has one of those aprons on and she's chewing gum and I, I sit in the seat, it's these vinyl booths and I sit down, you know, they're repaired with duct tape and you sit down and you try to slide and you can't because it's so sticky and uh, you grab the menu, it's sticky and she walks up, she's chewing gum and I'm trying to make light and joke with her. I said, let me tell you something, I'm, I'm not interested in quality, I'm interested in quantity. She didn't miss a beat. She just says, well, she kept chewing her gum, well, you've come to the right place. And you know what, when the food came, she was telling the truth. It was awful. There's a lot of it, but it was awful. So it's a matter when I engage with eternal life, not just dealing with quantity, but dealing with quality. John chapter 17, verse three, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is to lovingly, submissively, vibrantly relate with God in an authentic way to the degree that all my longings are addressed. They might not all be met this side of that moment in Revelation 5, but they're addressed. To relate with God in such a way that my, relation, that my relationships are deepened. To relate with God in such a way that it permeates my work and inhabits my hobbies. It authenticates my tears and triggers my laughter, restores my humanity. And I start engaging with you in community and lo and behold, we start being distributed in, a, in the valley of the shadow of death as the church of the firstborn from among the dead. Don't be pleased with anything less. C.S. Lewis actually says we, we're given this, the unblushing nature, the unblushing promise of reward in the gospel and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the gospel. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in a slum because he cannot comprehend what is meant by an offer of a holiday by the sea. We are distributed, but we're distributed to give life. In John 14, verse six, Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And a deep burden that I have is too many of our churches engage with Jesus as way and truth, but not life. We engage with Jesus as way, a code of conduct. We engage with Jesus as, as truth, doctrinal statements. Are those true? Of course they are. But his way and his truth is meant to bring us to life on a daily basis.